The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, it's a delight to be able to open this word to you this morning. We're looking at Luke 1, 46 through 55. And like it says in Psalm 34, verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Amen? That's what we're here to do today. That's what worship is, that we would magnify Christ. You know, more than ever before, I think we're seeing that we live in a culture that wants to minimize Christ. A culture that would like to make him disappear entirely. Do you sense that? It's been on the news this week, all different ways that they're trying to get rid of Merry Christmas. You know, I was talking to Andy Wynn, he said he's disappointed because he always liked to say season's greetings and now people are thinking he's politically correct. I like to say season greetings too and happy holidays and I like to say Merry Christmas, but it's gotten me to thinking. The real issue here is not whether Macy's is required or not to say Merry Christmas or printed on their bags or whether the Denver Parade of Lights is required to have the pastor and his float in there that says Merry Christmas. They evicted the float for that very reason. It said Merry Christmas and out you go. But that's not the issue, is it? The issue is why... Do the people that surround us want to minimize Christ? That's the real problem, isn't it? And how can we maximize or magnify Christ? How can we do that? That's the real calling. You know, it says that 80%, I was reading statistics, 80% of our culture uh, is claimed to be Christians. Now, of those, how many are genuinely born again? I have no idea, but far less than that, I would think. And so I'm I'm really not looking for Washington to mandate that those folks or anybody say Merry Christmas when handing over a Christmas gift uh, that we bought at Macy's or any other place. That's not the issue. What I want to know is what's going on in their heart concerning Christ? And not just theirs, but mine. Am I magnifying Christ with my life? And that's what we're here to do at worship. That's our purpose today. That's why we've been singing. That's why we gathered together, that Christ would become greater. And I can't think of a better text to do it than this Magnificat. It's from the Latin word referring to the fact that Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. What does it mean to magnify the Lord? Well, we've talked about this before, haven't we? We are not seeking to make God any bigger in himself. We cannot do it. He is already infinite. He's already great. He fills heaven and earth. We can't magnify such a being. But there is a place in God's universe where he is too small. And that is in your heart and in mine and the hearts of the people at Macy's and surrounding culture. That's where he's too small. And we have come together to magnify him, to make him greater, not in himself, but in our estimation. That we would think greater thoughts of him. And that is exactly what was going on in Mary's heart as she went there to see Elizabeth. She was magnifying the Lord. Now, we are threatened by these increasing secularization, not just of Christmas, but just of our culture. And I think it's something to be gravely concerned about. 
Because we know from history that when a culture goes in this direction, eventually it becomes harder and harder to assemble the worship, to speak the name of Christ, to share the gospel uh, widely. We see it happening. What these folks want is not to remove Merry Christmas. I can tell you most of the ACLU lawyers are not offended by having somebody say Merry Christmas. These are tough people. It doesn't bother them much. But they do have an agenda, don't they? And that is enforced state atheism. That's what they're looking for. For me, I would like to see Christ magnified everywhere. But I know enough to know that this is the present age we live in. And so we are called on to proclaim and to suffer. Because anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. So I'm not so troubled about what Macy's prints on their bags next year. That's not what's on my mind. But I want to magnify Christ. And the way we do it is to get into the Word. To look at it, to read it, to think about each phrase, to savor each part. To look at everything that Mary said in this case as a, as a rare jewel. Something that's going to show us again some aspect of the glorious God that we love and serve. That's what we're going to do together today. My goal is to go through this Magnificat, this incredible praise of Mary, and just try to understand what she was so excited about. What was she so delighting in? What was she wanting to magnify so that we might worship Christ properly? Let's do that together. First, let's look at some context. You know, Galatians 4, 4 and 5 said... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, the question I'm asking right here now is, what does it mean in the fullness of time? What was going on in world history? What was going on in redemptive history when Mary spoke these words, when Christ was born? What is the context of Mary's praise? Well, the Jewish nation had been dominated by Gentile overlords for six centuries. One after another had ruled over Palestine. Roman soldiers at that point were tramping through the Judean countryside, looking for the best of the harvest or whatever they might need for their army. And the Jews could have the rest. Very difficult and unsettling times. Puppet kings like Herod the Great under Roman domination were ruling unjustly and wickedly. Furthermore, there had been, it seems, no prophetic word from God for four centuries since Malachi finished up the Old Testament four centuries before. A long dry spell in which they're not hearing from God and the Gentiles just dominating. And I'm sure the Jews were wondering, what has become of the promises made to Abraham? And I'm sure Mary might have wondered those same things. Now, who was Mary? Well, Mary was Jewish. She was a daughter of Abraham. She was also descended from David. Her genealogy, I believe, shows in Luke that she was a daughter of David as well. It seems that she was poor. She was betrothed to Joseph. And the two of them could not afford the lamb for the offering. And so they had to settle for the second pigeon or turtle dove. And so they were poor. The prospects for material prosperity were not good. She was marrying the village carpenter. And he was a godly man, but he was not going to make her wealthy. Not that she desired it, because she was a godly woman. She yearned for the glory of God. And she was filled with the grace of God. God had been gracious to her. And she loved God with all of her heart. We also see, and we're going to know more about her as we go on this week, and God willing, next week, that she was quiet and pensive. She was reflective and pious. She was, in every respect, a role model. Also, an element of context in Luke 1 is what happened to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, her relative, perhaps cousin, uh, had received some astonishing news 
that she was, in her old age, going to have a baby. That baby was going to be John the Baptist, and he would be the forerunner to Christ. And so that's amazing, but I don't believe that Mary knew about that yet, but you as a reader of Luke 1, you knew about it as you're reading. But then Mary receives her own extraordinary news, and that is the basis or the context of this praise. What's happened to Elizabeth, and what's happened to Mary, but especially what's happened to Mary. And what has happened to Mary? Well, the angel Gabriel appeared to her, and... Uh, Gabriel, by the way, uh, one of the only two named angels in the Bible, had appeared hundreds and hundreds of years before that to Daniel at the Ulai Canal in in Babylon and spoken. Angels are timeless beings. And he appears to Mary and he greets her in in a way that troubles her. And then he gives her some astonishing news. You are going to have a son. Your son will be the Messiah. Your son will also be God's son. He will be the son of God. He will be, therefore, God in the flesh. And he is going to have a kingdom that will never end. Now imagine if you were a young Jewish girl hearing this. It's astonishing news, extraordinary. And her response is predictable. How can this be since I don't know a man? I've never been with a man, so how is it possible for me to have a baby? And then Gabriel explained in, in Luke one thirty five, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now this is the central mystery of Christmas. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man? It's the mystery of the Incarnation. And it's explained as best that we can understand it in Luke one thirty-five that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and her body and Jesus was conceived inside her without the benefit of, of a husband. And then Gabriel gives her some proof similar to uh, Gideon's fleece. He doesn't say that, but I think that's why he offers it. Even, even Elizabeth, your relative, is with child. I don't think she knew that up to this point, but in a way he's leading her, I think, saying, go and confirm. And when you find out that Elizabeth is having an amazing and miraculous baby too, then you will be able to believe what I'm saying. Not that she's not believing, because she does believe, and Elizabeth says so. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will come to pass. So she believes it. But then she says, uh, or Gabriel gives an astonishing affirmation and says, and this is something we should always keep in mind, for nothing is impossible with God. God can create a, a baby inside the womb of a woman who's past her age, and God can also create a baby inside a woman who's never been with a man. God can do this. Nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary's submissive and faith-filled answer, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may it be to me as you have said, and then the angel leaves. Well then, immediately, what does Mary want to do but get up and go find Elizabeth so that she can confirm the angel's words, but also they they can have that kind of woman-to-woman fellowship that just men will never be able to understand. And so she just wants to go and just share that, the two of them together. And so she goes to confirm and to be with Elizabeth. And as soon as she gets there, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist, not yet born, leaps inside her, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible moment as the two of them experience this, this, uh, this moment as Mary walks in. 
And in a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. That, my friends, is the context of Mary's praise. So there she is. She's about to answer. And she speaks extraordinary things. Incredible things. The Magnificat, the magnificent praise that she gives at that moment. What are some characteristics of that? Just generally. As you look across it, you see depth. There's a depth to what she has to say. It's not lighthearted or frivolous like, oh, praise the Lord. Uh, it goes deeper than that. She's reflecting on what is happening. She's reflecting on the significance. She is a ponderer. She's deep waters. And just as will happen in Luke 2 when, when it actually comes to pass, she just treasures these things in her heart. She ponders them just as she pondered Gabriel's greeting uh, to her to begin with. We see also joy. The whole tone of Mary's praise is joyful celebration with deep awe and reverence. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord or magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's rejoicing in God. So there's great joy. There's also God-centered adoration. God is at the center of all that she has to say. She's focused on God. It's God-centered praise. His divine power. His holiness, His mercy to her and to generation after generation, and His faithfulness. God-centered adoration. She zeroes in on that, and she will not leave it like a laser focused on God. We also see Scripture, scriptural knowledge. She knows the Bible, the Old Testament. That's what there was. And it's just saturated with biblical imagery. Some say it's very much like Hannah's praise when little Samuel is born and she praises God. But it's, it's really only a little bit similar to that. Hannah is seemingly taking delight in a triumph over her personal enemy and the trouble that she's had for that. And she's praising God for that. But Mary's praise just goes so much further than that. And actually some scholars find at least 20 different scriptural allusions in Mary's brief praise here. She's saturated. Her mind and her heart saturated with the word of God. And what a perfect mother for Jesus. Because never was there a man that walked the earth as saturated with scripture as Jesus was. He used it for everything. even spoke it on the cross when he was dying. And so what a perfect choice. A mother who knew the Bible and who would be able to proclaim it and to speak it even from infancy to Jesus. And then we also see her humility. She has a sense of why is this happening to me? To me. There's a sense of her humble origins. A sense that I don't deserve this. There's a humility here. And we also see, I think, a note of triumph as well. All of these things are characteristics of Mary's praise. Well, let's look at the content of Mary's praise. I'm going to break it into four stanzas, like a poem. That's, I think, kind of what it is. In stanza 1, verses 46 through 49, it's exulting in God's blessings to her personally. In verse 50, stanza 2, she extends God's blessings from generation to generation. So she begins with herself and God's great works to her. And then she extends it out, generation to generation. And then stanza 3, verse 51 through 53, she delights in God's surprising ways in dealing with the full and the empty. God just does unpredictable things. He doesn't do it the way we would do it. And she just delights in that, what we'll call the great reversal. 
And then the fourth stanza, she celebrates God's faithfulness to his covenant uh, with Abraham. God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. That's the fourth part. Let's look at the first part, first stanza. Exulting in God's blessing to her, verse 46 through 49. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So that's her, her, her praise for God's greatness and blessing to her. Now, I think it's interesting. She's really quiet and reflective in the angel Gabriel's presence. But she just lets it go with Elizabeth. And, and, and again, I just think there's just an ability that women have to just open up and relate. To have deep friendships. To share at a level that men don't touch. And it's amazing. And I just think that they just bring this praise out of each other. At the human level. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit's all over Mary's statement every bit as much as it was over Elizabeth. But, but there's just a beauty of fellowship there between these two godly women. Now, the focus here is God's goodness to Mary personally. And this is where all true religion begins. God and me. Is there room at the cross for me, one hymn says. Is there going to be a place at the, at the wedding banquet of the Lamb for me? Is there a place for me? Do I have something coming? And that is not selfish. We were created individuals and as individuals to have a relationship with God. Probably the best statement of this, Psalm 139 is great, but I love Galatians 2.20 and that, that, that personal relationship between Paul and God and Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life, I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, that's where it begins. Are you trusting in Christ? Do you have a place at the wedding banquet of the Lamb? Do you have blessings that have flown uh, toward you from God personally? And that's where it starts. She starts with God's blessings to her. And, And her praise is, it just soars because I think it's rooted in humility. I think the more arrogant you are, the more boastful, the less you can praise like this. Because you just kind of expect it. Well, of course. I mean, it's me after all. But if, on the other hand, you're genuinely humble, and you sense what you truly deserve from God, then the praise just soars, doesn't it? Why should this be happening to someone like me? He has been mindful, she says, of the humble state of her servant. Not, well, this is uh, what I deserve. No, not at all. The humble state of her servant. And then she says something striking. She says, my soul magnifies in the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. What's in Mary's mind when she says the humble state of of his servant? I, I have to say it's her sin. She knows she's a sinner as all godly people do. She is honest about it and her need for a Savior. God my Savior. Savior from what? Well, in Matthew 1.21, the angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, you'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So what does Mary need a Savior from? But sin. Now, I was raised Roman Catholic. And what I'm saying right now would be Roman Catholic heresy and no joke. They believe she was sinless. They believe that she was immaculately conceived. Ever seen the Church of the Immaculate Conception? It's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about Mary in her mother's womb, that she was in a miraculous way kind of 
spared from original sin. And then she went on and lived a sinless life. And then she was bodily assumed into heaven. And she now sits as queen of heaven, ruling with Christ. And she is in some sense a mediatrix, a female mediator, along with her son between the human race and God. Well, I do not share those convictions. I think it's not true. And I think this one statement, Mary would not share them either. She would say, I I rejoice in God my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble estate of his handmaiden, of his servant. I'm a sinner. I needed a Savior. She believed that. She is a godly woman. She's humble. She knew the Bible. She's submissive to the will of God. But she's not to be worshipped. She's not to be worshipped. She was a sinner in need of a Savior. It's just, astonishingly, her Savior was her own son. That's the amazing thing here. But she needed a Savior, and she knew it. She also recognized from that point on that all generations would call her blessed. We would see the the place of honor that she had. Uh, Can you imagine all of the memories the unique experiences that we do not have. We have no record of them, of Jesus' growing up years. But Mary knew them. She saw them. She experienced them. She saw what sinlessness looked like from birth right through age 30 and and beyond. That's extraordinary. And to be able to teach him scripture, to see him grow in, in wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and man, to watch that process go on, what a blessing. And so God has given her great gifts. It says, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Can you say that today? Can you say it? You know, if we weren't such a, like, First Baptist Church, you'd stand up, the mighty one has done great things for me. And you would testify. But we're not going to do that. You notice there's no mics out here for you to do that, and you sure won't stand up and do it. Although, if I wait long enough, I think somebody might. So we're just going to go on. But the mighty one has done great things for all of us. But he's done some unique great things for her, hasn't he? The mighty one has sent an angel, and the angel has told her of something miraculous that's growing inside her. That's a great thing. Ordinarily, you know, the 46 chromosomes, 23 come from the woman, and uh, 23 come from the man. But the man is not there. And so God created out of nothing what needed to be there for Jesus to be fully human. Created out of nothing the way he created the universe out of nothing. Created out of nothing the way Jesus created Malchus's ear out of nothing after Peter chopped it off the night before he was crucified. Whoosh, here's an ear. Whoosh, here's 23 chromosomes. Whatever's needed, God can do. For nothing is impossible with God. God can do that. It bothers me when people stumble over these little things that God can do. For nothing is impossible with God. The Mighty One has done great things for me. But let me tell you, of all the great things he's done for Mary... The number one is to forgive her sins and welcome her into heaven. That's the number one. And she'd say so too. I think she is saying so every day right now as she worships God, her Savior. That's the great things that, she is, that God has done for her. Well, secondly, what about the extension of God's blessings from generation to generation? Verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary now widens her focus. She's not going to just say, God and me, me and God. But she's thinking about all of the people that this is going to affect. She's thinking about generation after generation. She is a deep woman. Her meditations are deep and real. His mercy extends to those who fear him. Now, I think she's thinking about this based on the words that Gabriel had said. He will reign on David's throne forever. His kingdom will never end. 
the eternal blessings that are coming through Jesus. Amazing. And she talks about the mercy of God. Now, what is God's mercy but his kindness to those that are in misery, those that are suffering? Sin has brought great suffering into this world. Great suffering. And God's mercy alleviates that suffering. It reaches down into the lives of suffering people and frees them from their suffering. That's what mercy is. Now, I say to you, for all of the great places of suffering in this world, and there are many, there is no earthly suffering that compares with the lake of fire. And that is God's central mercy to the human race through Jesus Christ. To be freed from the just condemnation, the eternal condemnation of our sins in hell. That we don't have to spend eternity under the wrath of God. That is mercy. I tell you that no experience in a slum of Calcutta or in an AIDS ward in Botswana or in a refugee camp in Pakistan or in a labor camp, forced labor camp in North Korea, none of those compare with the misery of those suffering in the lake of fire. That is the central mercy that extends from generation to generation. But she says it extends to those who fear him. It's not universal, but to those who fear him. Like it says in Psalm 103, verse 11 and following, It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. It is the God-fearers. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's how we come to faith in Christ. We fear his wrath and we flee to the Savior who is Christ. And so Mary extends her praise to think about generation after generation of God's mercy to those who fear him. Thirdly, she delights in God's surprising ways with the full and with the empty. Look at verses 51 through 53. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. This is the great reversal. It just goes the whole opposite way of the world. The world reveres wealth and prestige and power and influence and achievement and all of that ostentation. That's what the world reveres. But God reverses it all because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Mary understands that, doesn't she? And I think she's reflecting on who she is And that God would do this mighty great thing for her. Of all the the incredible women there are in the world, all the wealthy ones and empresses and and well-dressed, wealthy, noble women and all that, he hasn't chosen any of those. But he has chosen the lowest of the low. He's chosen Mary. And so this is the great reversal. Now, she speaks of the mighty deeds of God. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. His arm is mighty and powerful. Any Jew would know what she's talking about. She's thinking back to the time of the Exodus when an evil tyrant king is sitting on his throne and says, I'm not going to let the people go. They're going to serve me until they die. And then their children will serve me too. The tyrant Pharaoh and God topples him from his throne. He pours out plagues. He destroys Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. She knows all this. These are the very things that the psalmist said. We've heard of these mighty deeds. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. I want to see it. So she's probably, like all the Jews, thinking, hey, there's the Romans here. 
But she's thinking deeper than that, isn't she? Because, you know, the ultimate tyranny is not earthly. The ultimate tyranny is spiritual. Now, there were earthly tyrants. For example, there's Herod the Great. What an interesting man was Herod the Great. Herod the Great, the one who built Herod's temple, he lived in a lavish and luxurious palace. Incredible. Josephus describes it. Uh, extravagant banquet halls, bedchambers for 100 guests, pools, statues, everything decorated in gold. You know, even more than the Biltmore Estate, if you've ever been there and paid $50 to go sit. Is it 50 Maybe more. But anyway, just to see it, okay? Well, I think Herod had an even, even more lavishly appointed palace. He was, he was strange, very jealous of his throne, very protective, so much that he murdered his own wife and sons. And yet he kept kosher, you know, he wouldn't eat pig or other things. And so Caesar Augustus, who knew him and they were friends, said, you know, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. Because Herod had his son murdered, but he won't eat the pig. That's what, the way Herod was. He was a tyrant and the very same one who gave the order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in order that he might not miss killing Christ. The viciousness of that tyrant. And then there's Caesar Augustus himself, whose decree was issued throughout the whole Roman world that a census would be taken for the purpose of, of population control and taxation. And he can move huge quantities of people just with a decree like that. That's the power of Caesar Augustus. Ruled unchallenged over the Roman world for 45 years. An interesting man. Himself, he didn't like luxury. He didn't like open displays of luxury. And yet he said, I found Rome a city of brick and I left it a city of marble. That's the way Caesar Augustus was. Was she thinking about Herod the Great and Caesar Augustus, these mighty potentates, these rulers that would be toppled from their thrones? Perhaps she was. And all of the kind of underlords under them, all of the kind of human rulers, the arrogant ones, the ones that are proud, it says in their inmost thoughts, he's toppled them all. Why can he do that? Well, it says in Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. That's what the Lord can do. Or it says in, uh, in Daniel also that uh, no one can challenge him. The powers of heaven or earth or under the earth or say to him, what have you done? That's our mighty God. But God has spread a banquet table. In verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. It says in Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. It's an invitation to come without money and without cost. Now, do these, does this verse teach that rich people cannot be saved? No. It just teaches that they get saved by spurning their wealth as worthless. It's of no eternal consequence because Isaiah 55 says, you want to come to the banquet, come without money and without cost. Don't try to buy it. It's not for sale. It's a free gift. And the people who recognize that it has no eternal consequence, these are the ones that are going to come feast. Jesus fed people, literally, physically, while he was on earth, but it wasn't what you would call the richest affair, at least not what I would call the richest affair. Barley, loaves, and fish. Now, if I had to eat it, I'd, I'd eat it. But, I mean, if that's what you serve when I came over for dinner, I'd say thank you. Appreciate it. So what you have? Barley, loaves, and fish. Very simple fare. But that's not what he came to do. He's talking about a spiritual banquet. He's talking about eating forever in the kingdom of God. Eating God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and seeing God face to face. That's the banquet. Without money and without cost. 
Imagine, by the way, if you brought your own lunch to the Galilean hillside. You wouldn't eat Jesus' food, would you? Or imagine if you brought your own supply of rare vintage wine to a wedding at Canaan, Galilee. You wouldn't be drinking Jesus' wine because you'd think yours is better. And so if you're full of earthly things, you don't need Jesus. You don't need him. But if you know that you're empty, if you know that you're lost, if you know that you're poor and wretched and pitiful and blind spiritually, then Jesus came for you. That's why he came. He came to give you life. He sent the rich, the full away empty, but the ones who know they're empty, that's who he came for. And he spread a banquet for them. And so Jesus said, Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The fourth stanza is celebrating God's faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham. We've been studying in Genesis. You folks know week after week we've been talking about this covenant to Abraham. God had promised, he had promised, he had promised. God keeps his promises, but he hadn't kept it yet. And so she's looking back and saying, what's happened to the promised land? What's happening to God's people? It seems that we're under God's wrath. The Gentiles are there all the time. Are you going to remember us? It says in verse 54 and 55, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. After 400 years of waiting for God to speak, After Malachi spoke the final word of the Old Covenant, waiting and waiting, the people were, I think, wondering. Psalm 77. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Mary answers the question here. Do you see it? He has not forgotten Israel. He's not forgotten Abraham. He's not forgotten his covenant. He's going to fulfill it. He's fulfilling it now. Well, this is Mary's praise. She celebrates God's mercy and grace to Mary personally. Secondly, she extends it out generation and generation of those who fear him. Third, she talks about the great reversal of how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How he topples rich tyrants, sends the full away, but but the meek, the lowly, the weak, the empty, these he ministers to. And how God has kept his promise to Abraham. Now, what is the consummation of Mary's praise? What do I mean by consummation? I mean, this is foretaste. This is good praise, but this is nothing compared to what Mary's doing right now. This is just beginning. Notice, by the way, that she never mentions her son anywhere in this praise. It's really kind of like Old Testament praise. She never openly mentions Christ. It's the context for why she says it, but she never speaks of it. She is intensely Christ-focused now. There's nothing wrong with this praise. I'm just saying she has a journey to travel. By the end of her life and after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, she knows far more what it means that God is her Savior than she does at this point. And so what is the consummation of Mary's praise? Well, I have a simple, a simple concept. That Mary's true honor and her greatest blessing is not in being Jesus' physical mother, but in Jesus' faith-filled disciple. That's her highest place of honor. Because in that, she finds her salvation. And in that, she is focused forever. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he honored her. He respected her. But also, he limited her role. Remember when Jesus' mother and brothers come to take charge of Jesus because they think that he's out of his mind? You remember that? And Jesus says, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? 
And he pointed to his disciples. He said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And another time in Luke 11, a woman calls out after hearing some incredible teaching of Jesus, Blessed is the woman who gave you birth and nursed you. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's what Jesus said. And so even there, he's saying, The greatest blessing of Mary's life is not in giving birth to Jesus. But in hearing the gospel that he came and came to preach and believing that his death was sufficient for her sins, that she might spend eternity praising God, her Savior, who is her son. Now, that's the consummation of Mary's praise. What application can we take from this? Well, when I first wrote this message, I had ten points of application. I said, oh boy, probably be like about three o'clock by the time we get done. And that'd be fine for some of you. And not for others, okay? But here's the thing. Let's zero down on two things in particular. Worship the way Mary did. Focus on Jesus at Christmas and and throughout the year. Focus on Him. By the power of the Spirit, fill your mind with the person of Christ, with the gift of Christ, with what He came to do. Saturate your minds with the gospel. When was the last time you read a gospel through? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Right straight through. Do it. Do it. Maybe even do it this afternoon. You could read Mark's gospel this afternoon. Read through a gospel. Fill your mind with Christ and worship God again for the giving of Christ. But secondly, understand what it means that God topples tyrants and rulers down from their thrones. You know, I have to be honest, I play that role sometimes in my life. I play the arrogant kind of emperor king sometimes. If somebody says something I don't like or if I don't get what I want or if I think about Christmas in terms of, gee, wonder what I'm going to get rather than wonder how I can serve and love. I'm playing that role. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you feel empty right now, if you feel empty spiritually, it could be that you don't realize that you're empty. And the first step for you is say, I'm empty. I'm, I'm, I'm not filled with the Spirit. I need God. Other things have crowded God out of my life. But he sends the full away empty, but the empty ones he fills. And so you come to him and say, Lord, show me what I am. Show me that I need you. Not just the first time when I walked the aisle or prayed the prayer. But I mean, I need you now. I need you to fill me now. I'm drifting from you. I need to be close to you again. And some of you perhaps are here not as believers in Christ, but because it's the Sunday before Christmas. And I'm so glad you're here. It's a delight to me that you would come. But let me ask you, do you know Christ? Do you feel his saving love in your heart? Have you trusted in him? Do you realize that you need a Savior from sin? That apart from Christ's finished work on the cross, that you would have no hope on Judgment Day? Trust in Him right now, even while you're sitting there. And come and talk to me afterwards. Say, I need to know more about Christ. I want to follow Him, but I'm not doing it. Trust in the Savior. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.